OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to the Supporters Fund, Ask an Investor. I'm your host, Jeffrey Potvin. Let's please welcome Moen Gyashi. PhD Senior Investment Associate at Green Sky Capital as our investor for today. Welcome, Moen. It's a real pleasure having you join us today. Thanks for having me, man. Very, very happy to be part of the pod. I love it. Well, we're excited to talk to you because there's a few cool things that you bring to this table outside of being a global traveler, but and of course, including where you've had your schooling and all these great things, but you're also in this chemical space which I've always been highly fascinated with because the whole world is in and out against this whole chemical side of things, especially when everybody's going green. And I think you obviously have done a lot in this space. So it really brings a lot of better understanding. I think we'll get to the the whole market side and then we'll dive in, of course, what's going on in the startup world. But the way we love to start our show is that we want to learn a bit about more about yourself. So maybe you can talk about uh, your schooling days from U of T to the startups and and the companies that you work with today. And then one thing about you that nobody would know. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess going back in time, um, I did my undergrad in, in Iran, um, did it in polymer engineering. I think the idea that I had when I was 18 was that the world is made of materials and if I could be a material engineer, I can change the world. And that's why I started actually studying polymer engineering. Was was it was obviously very fascinating to me. Um, I immigrated to Canada in 2013. Um, immigrated specifically for school, so came to University of Alberta at uh, in Edmonton. All of a sudden, there was a temperature change that was that was massive. And uh, I did my master's in chemical engineering. My my focus was. Um, obviously, oil and gas is is what funds University of Alberta and a lot of research. But my focus was on tailing ponds and environmental impact of oil extraction in Alberta. Um, that was a very interesting topic for me, just because there's massive, massive amount of land in northern Alberta that is, that is captured by these tailing ponds. It's just sitting there, and nobody knows what to do with it. Um, I think hopefully now, after like. 10, 15 years of research, people have better ideas about these tailing ponds and they're trying to um, come up with solutions. I'm seeing a lot of startups, deeper technologies that are thinking of actually getting rid of it, extracting the water, extracting minerals, et cetera. So that's, it's becoming interesting. Um, moved to Toronto in 2015 uh, to do a PhD. I was in love with, uh, with science, wanted to become a professor all in. And so I was like, I should do a PhD. Um, but then, um, I wanted to go back to my like material roots, um, so I started working again on materials. My focus was 3D printing. Um, I used to work with a lot of biomaterials, materials that are extracted from uh, from plants or from nature. I, my material of choice was cellulose. I was I was directly working with a lot of cellulose, trying to use them in 3D printing. Um, it's it's great that like we have in Canada. There's the forestry industry is is actually massive, so there's there's a ton of um, wood waste that can be then extracted um, and, and used as cellulose and then ultimately that cellulose can be used as, as a material of choice. Um, so yeah, I did that as a PhD, but then I was fascinated with a lot of the research that I was doing, but kind of what was bothering me a lot was the fact that we do a lot of research, government puts in a lot of money into our research, but then what happens after that? Like it, 
it just dies. And like, I, I have publications, they're scientific, but nobody sees it. Like Jeffrey has never seen my, my publication. He doesn't know what I do. He doesn't know what is the application of what I do. It's just because it is sitting there. Nobody's seeing it other than other scientists who are just using it for uh, the sake of science. And I, that was kind of um, the driver for me to step outside academia. I was, I was looking into um, a lot of the patents that the University of Toronto is producing. My, my supervisor specifically was producing. And I was like, I should do something to help commercialize all of these, uh, all of the research that is that is happening. Um, and I was kind of that was kind of the starting point for me. Like, can I actually support commercialization of science? Um, and then as I dig deeper, I learned more about an institute at the University of Toronto called Creative Destruction Lab, which is which is now actually more of a global um, institution. And right after my PhD, I started working there as a as a venture manager. So I was directly working with a lot of technology companies, helping them with commercialization, fundraising, growth, et cetera. That was kind of my transition to more of a business side as uh, as opposed to uh, just being a scientist and uh, and a researcher. So yeah, did that for a year, uh, worked at uh, at a medical device um, and then, and then joined uh, Green Sky uh, Capital, which now we call Green Sky Ventures. Uh, joined them as an as an associate. Uh, we uh, at Green Sky we do invest in B two B Canadian companies. Um, but uh, one of the great things about Green Sky is that we do also invest in a lot of deeper technology solutions, uh, solutions that are uh, IP backed. There is there's a lot of research behind it. Um, and that was that was kind of my niche. Um, and that was something that I loved, like trying to help commercialize science, trying to help commercialize deeper technology solutions. Um, and yeah, that's uh, that's what I'm doing right now, leading the tech investment at, uh, at Clean Sky, trying to whenever I have time, trying to mentor and help startup companies um, in, in deeper tech or, or non deeper tech, just uh, trying to help them commercialize their solutions. Uh, so that's been, I guess, the journey. It's uh, I've been in Canada for ten years exactly. Came in twenty thirteen, um, and uh, you know, I guess one thing that nobody knows about me is that I like cooking. Uh, I don't know if it's boring or not. If other people said the same thing, but cooking is definitely something that I like a lot. Um, I don't get a lot of time to cook now as as I used to, but I I definitely love to find the time to. Uh, to cook, I love to have a beautiful kitchen and uh, with a lot of appliances. That's that's definitely a dream, uh, and uh, and a pizza oven specifically is is what I love. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's what I uh, do. That others don't know about me, I guess. That's awesome. And and, and no, cooking is um, is a great skill. It's refined, detail oriented, all those good things, right? So I, yeah. I love it. It's awesome. Well, we're gonna kind of go back a few steps because. When you were talking about and and one thing that really kind of stands out along uh, the things I've watched on the videos and and different things that you've written is that uh, commercialization on the science side, uh, I like that you really define that this is something that you were trying to work on. Now, is there some past experiences where you did try to take some of your own material and try and drive that into a business and and what was the outcome from that? I guess the, the, that is the other thing that people. Don't know about me because it's not on, on the LinkedIn side. Yeah, um, um, I that that's actually how it started. Like we we had new material classes. The material classes could be used for three D printing, especially for three um, D printing of biological elements. So you could 
you could like 3D print um, something that looks like an organ, and then you could take this and try to like um, like add drugs to it, try to test with a lot of drugs and see what what would happen. So it's we would call them organoids, and you can actually you can actually mimic how an organ would behave in response to a specific drug, for example. Um, so that was kind of the idea that, that I wanted to commercialize with my supervisor. Um, but uh, um, but I guess I dropped the idea or like I dropped the um, the effort to commercialize it. And one of the reasons was that I realized that the market size is not very large. Um, and the folks that are going to be the purchasers of this, this technology are going to be other researchers. And, and I, I thought that it's not actually very large. But in, in hindsight, I think five years um, later today, I've seen a 3D printing company uh, that is that does a lot of the bioprinting and stuff has has uh, closed a massive deal. Um, um, I've uh, and, I, and I'm seeing a lot of like smaller shops that are producing these new materials for research purposes, as well as um, uh, other biological applications. So it could be a successful business. I still think it uh, it wouldn't have been as a massively scalable startup, um, and that's why I didn't. I did. I decided not to pursue it because, as I thought, it's not gonna it's not gonna fly and become very big. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's the the other challenge pro uh, probably of the science side. Like we did the science for the sake of science, but didn't do the science uh with the objective or idea of commercialization in mind to begin with like we didn't do the science to solve a specific problem we were just exploring and discovering well it's interesting that that experience actually defined where you went next uh, in your journey and if you take that portion of what you did how much it's probably driven how you can operate today and work with startups and how you can kind of lead them because you took the time to take a technology, figure out, can I turn this and put this into a product? And as you work through that process, you also looked earlier on, can I commercialize this? And can I scale this? And you mentioned, um, you know, scalable startup. It, it was this scalable. And five years ago, it didn't look scalable. So you kind of reverted and said, okay, this isn't going to work. Can you maybe define what made you determine this? Most startups would have hacked at it for five years, maybe seven years, and then decided, okay, this isn't working, or they couldn't raise any more funds. So they chose not to at that time, after yeah. wasting five years to um, not realize that they couldn't get any more money or scale. So what was the determining factor for you at that point? Because I think that's pretty crucial insight that you had such an early on to say, wait, this isn't something that's going to be a billion dollar company. Uh, I'm going to pause on this and go a different direction. Um, I think I just went back to the fundamental and tried to really map out the market. Like we had a bunch of, let's say, other research labs reaching out to us trying to buy this material, which is which is always a great sign. Like you have a buyer, but then I I, I was like more pessimistic than that. I, I like I wanted to see something bigger. I wanted to see a better indication. I wanted to see maybe an industrial partner ready to like do a pilot, or I wanted to see if an industrial partner could at least take this and scale it to a larger scale. Um, and really what happened was that I, I basically tried to like map out what is the market size? Like how, how much can I sell? What would be the revenue of this company? Let's say the first three, four, five years, just in my head. Like obviously um, we know financial projection is amazing, but it never comes to reality. But then I realized that, okay, with 
a realistic kind of projection is not something that is a scale up. It's going to be something that, yeah, it's going to be a business probably in successful days can get to like half a million revenue. But, but, but then what, what I had as the core of the technology wouldn't be, wouldn't be something that is a scalable just because of the nature of the customers, the nature of the customers remaining as let's say um, academics who want this material, who wants this technology to be able to do more research that I found um, as a as a small market, like one of the things that we ask startups to kind of give us is what is the size of your market right now? Um, and I mean, like there are different things that people say, like some people want to see billion dollars, some people want to see ten, tens of billions of dollars. But like essentially what it comes down to is that if your market size is larger, the probability of you hitting um, the right spot is is obviously higher. If you have a more niche market, if your market is 5, 10, 15, 20 million dollars and not hundreds of millions of dollars, you, you might be able to actually capture this market, uh, but the probability of success is just lower compared to when you have a billion dollar market. So when you're looking at it, it, it sounds like what is the real obtainable market? So there's kind of like high in the sky, as you mentioned, financially, we've got estimates all the time that are really um, over-exaggerated, even if they're looked at as being, here's my humble way of sharing numbers. But when you're when you're looking at what's actually the obtainable market, so is there a, a refined moment where you say, okay, you know what, they're at a $500 million market, there's only two real players in this market, there's such an opportunity, there's big demand, there's there's a lot to grab off the table here, this is something that we need to jump into. Yeah, that, that that's that was definitely what I was looking to to see if I can actually find, and I wasn't convinced that I can find that. And and I can tell you that right now, actually, five years after, there are a lot of startups trying to like kind of sell the same idea that okay, I can give you an organoid and you can you can test drugs on it, you can see if it's uh, if it's compatible with your drugs, or you can do all the toxicity genomics, whatever stuff you want to do. But then the problem is that all of these smaller players are also academics who decided to commercialize this, which is great. All of them might be successful small businesses that generate revenue and uh, create jobs. But I would argue that they are not a startups. They are not massively scalable businesses that can capture um, a large market size. And to refine that uh, one step further, what do you see as being a and not specific a company, but what do you see as something that is scalable? Like what does scalable mean in your eyes? Is it, you know, a uh, hundred million in five years? Is it uh, product in hand? Like what, what makes a better scalable company for you guys to say, yeah, this makes sense or for yourself um, that makes sense that we should dive into this or at least start supporting this tech when it's early on in year one or year two. Yeah, I think definitely seeing a specific market size, right? Like, Yes, if you if you go deep and look at the obtainable market, is it actually a hundred million dollar obtainable market? At least I know people try to map out their their TAM and they're like, this is a trillion dollar market. Everybody breezes every day. This is a huge market for us. Let's produce oxygen. Um, but uh, but no, we look at deeper. Look at the obtainable market. Like if if you actually map out all the customers and if you were to build a sales funnel, can you actually build a sales funnel with which if I give you $20 million, you can go out and, and at least generate like $100 million revenue um, in, a, in a matter of a couple of years. Um, 
I, and going back to financial projections, people send us a projection. The first year is X amount. Second year is 3X. <laughs> third year is 5X and, and so on. And they try to show that hockey stick or, or I guess the bottom side of the S-scare. But what is, what is interesting is that they, what they, first of all, none of them really hit that number. It's just like scaling is not that easy. But at least having the potential to a scale, having to be able to disrupt the market through a scaling quickly is something that you're looking at. Um, and it, it comes from the market potential. It comes from the technology itself. Obviously, it comes from the, the team itself. Um, but, but I think it, it, it is definitely a combination. But if you want to just focus on the size of the market or obtainable market, if you had enough, like all the money in the world and money was not a problem, could you actually get to $100 million in, in a matter of a couple of years? I think that's probably where I find and see a lot of people in this market when they're building is that they're not building off having market fit. They're building off dreams. And when they're building off these dreams, they're very scalable, of course, in your mind, we can scale anything, but they're not realizing what the effort is that goes beside inside of this. So if you're going to do a hundred million, does that mean you have a team of a thousand? If you're going to, or a hundred, and in order to get that scalable movement going, have you uh, created a flywheel where that process is just so quick, you know, and we've had companies over the years um, that have failed and we asked them, you know, what was, what would you do different in your next company? And I think a lot of them had different versions of things that they would do differently. Um, and again, lots of different comments behind it, but one of them, which um, always stood out to me was that they never found that commercialized flywheel, which was the printing press of how that revenue just keeps regenerating itself. What were you doing that allowed for your business to find that niche, as you mentioned, and then just cookie cutter that process so that it, instead of having a six month close, you have a one week close or a one day close. And how do you keep revolving that number down? And I guess if you're looking at the scientific side, you know who you're selling into and you know that academia will take maybe longer for them to process, understand and approve and agree, which could mean that this could be an eight month close from the start of that pitch. That means that you have to have quite a few irons in the fire in order to keep that repetitively going. And then can you take it from eight months down to four, down to uh, two, down to one? And if that's not feasible, it's always going to be eight months. Then you really have to have a big pipeline in order to cover that off to make this business scalable at any point in time. And I think scalability comes with speed. And, and that's always a tough factor to battle. And I would, I would just add that scalability is not the same as a scaling at any cost. Like you have a scalable business or potentially a scalable business, but if you go crazy and you double the headcount every year and like double the burn or triple the burn to double the sales, that is not desirable then. I think you're seeing that a lot in the markets today where you're having a lot of corrections where companies who have been throwing money at sales are realizing that when they cut back their team, they lose half their sales and they, they start to falter because um, as one of um, paraphrasing, you know, you're either the painkiller or you're the, the vitamin and it's better to be the painkiller than the, the nice to have. And I think a lot of businesses are realizing that, that when markets get tough, people cut certain pieces of their, of their expense. So are you going to be part of that 
model or are you going to be removed because you're not really a value to the company? And I think sometimes you really do have to take that scalability side and decide if this is scalable, is this something that will always be needed in this company? And can we grow within that um, client that we have? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think what what kind of resonated with me is is also if you are the painkiller trying to be the better, faster, cheaper painkiller versus to be another generic painkiller that can't differentiate is is also something that would help you build a more sustainable business. Um, but I mean, what I want to caveat this this whole conversation to is that a successful a success is not building a startup you can also build a small business you can generate revenue you can create jobs and be a successful person and have good salaries and that is still very very valuable a huge portion of the economy is built by small businesses um, not everybody should be a startup i love it well said completely agree with that so now you take this learning that you've built off you know, trying to build out this first model of your business. And then you started to work and help uh, a lot of these other groups, accelerators, incubators, uh, obviously on the venture firm side. So you're doing a lot of uh, interaction with founders and startups and, and helping them kind of better see uh, that this business that they're building is possible to be scalable. And, you know, not every business, as you said, is going to have those capabilities to be scalable. And the other thing that kind of really dives into uh, what you've been doing is that you're a part of a lot of board observer sides. And what I wanted to learn more about, because I think I get a lot of these questions. One, people have a fear of putting boards together, uh, founders. And then secondarily, a lot of them don't understand what an observer role is and how it supports the business and what the reasoning behind them are. So you tend to find you're sharing both sides. Can you give us a, an idea of how these boards are set up or how you participate in an observer role? Because I think this is not only key for you and how you're developing in the venture world, but it's also key for founders to understand that there's a lot of value you can gain from an observer role inside of your board. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, I, I guess um, historically, when you started to um, grow your business, you get at a point that you want to put together a board. This, this, this has nothing to do with having an investor, just grow a business. And then I guess traditionally you IPO and now you must have a board, et cetera, et cetera. So that has been traditionally how it used to be. Now come, let's say startups uh, are the group that you're focusing on. They start, um, they probably raise a pre-seed round. Some of them don't want to start having a board or the pre-seed just because they have a couple of angels. It's it's just the founders. But then once they raise their first serious institutional round, let's say their seed round, they start putting together a board. And, and usually the composition of the board is, is like one or two investors, one or two of the executives, and it could be one person from outside. Um, this composition can, can obviously change. It could be a three-person board at the beginning, or it could be a five-person board at the beginning. Um, obviously, I think it's it's more valuable to have fewer board members at the beginning. I've seen companies that have eight board members, and the value of the company is at six million. That is obviously a red, relatively a red flag, and and the reason for that is that this company, for example, was spun out of a hospital. There was so one person from the board of the hostel that, that joined as a board member. One person was an investor. One person was the original founder of the company. One person is a C and then and then you add these and then it becomes eight people. Obviously, at such a small scale of, of a company that you're at, if you have eight 
board members that you're just basically not being able to do anything because you have to respond to eight people and, and put together eight people to uh, to make um, any decision. Um, so that's that's a red flag that I've seen. But, but imagine you have like a standard three, four uh, person board at the beginning. Um, one of the things that people mix up is that, let's say if you're an investor and you are on a board, your role is to protect your investment, but that is completely false. As a as an investor who is on, on the board, your role is to protect the shareholders and what uh, the, the success of the company to maximize the profit or earnings or whatever the objective is for the shareholders of the company. So there, there are obviously sometimes conflicts of interest. People have to declare that. They have to make sure that the shareholders gain is utmost important compared to um, their own investment. That's that's one. Um, uh, but then, yeah, as you mentioned, there's there could be a lot of benefits from your board. Your board members could be folks that have a lot of experience in, in certain things. Your board member could have 30 years of M&A experience. Your board member could have um, a many years um, experience as a CFO or could be a specifically like a technical person. Um, stuff that you come, uh, you share in your board uh, meetings could be related to your cybersecurity and stuff, risks that are associated with your business. Um, as you grow, you might have a specific committee, so like a compensation committee. Um, so it, it can grow and expand if, into different committees and groups and subgroups and different types of conversations, but with the idea of helping the CEO, helping the executive team, and the ultimate objective of helping um, the company grow and thrive for, uh, for the benefit of shareholders. So that's the objective. But obviously... Um, we have to make sure conflict of interest is is always um, is is always like at, at everyone's um, uh, minds. Like they talk about their their conflicts, they make sure that they put shareholder um, uh, uh, in front of everybody else, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the things that also have to be there. Um, but then the role of board observers. Um, so those are folks that come in. They could come in from the investor side, or they could come in just as an advisor. They don't have a board voting right, so they wouldn't be able to vote to do anything specific about the company, but obviously they can observe the board. They can give advice to the CEO based on the conversation that has happened. They specifically could have also uh, different types of ex expertise and skill sets. Um, but I guess one of the things is that then they're not liable the same way that the actual board members are. They're just observing. They can talk, they can give feedback, but they can't vote. And as a result, they don't have uh, they don't have the liability. Makes it easier for advisors to join and sit at a board um, and be able to give feedback, let's say back to the founder or back to anybody else who's who's on the board uh, without the liability or the challenges that are that are legally binding. I love it. That's a, a great description of how the board and, and how it interacts with uh, the CEO and, and the rest of the founding team and, of course, the team. But also, I love how you tied in a few of these uh, pieces around. It, it really is offsetting the skill set of the CEO. They're looking for people that would represent uh, the business. And, and as you said, this isn't about protecting their own interest. And I think there's a real shortcoming here is that people that go on boards feel that they're 
goal and everything is to be the CEO of their own entity to make sure they don't lose their shares or lose their value while pushing their own directive. And that happens at all levels of, of board. And it's really an unfortunate piece because you need to be unbiased. You need to come in with the, the goal that you're representing all of the shareholders in that company. Yeah, this is obviously a much, much longer conversation. I tried to like um, squeeze a um, bunch of things that might not have even a, a straight line of uh, train of thoughts, but but yes, yes, you're right. It's uh, It should be valuable. It should be to the benefit of the executive team. It should be to the benefit of shareholders. Um, and I think founders should be more educated about what the board can do for them and the responsibilities of the board, because it's not just the board coming and sitting and trying to interrogate the CEO but also to see you going in prepared and, and ready to ask questions and ask for help and ask for support. And it's interesting when you say the interrogation part, because I think that's the fear the founder has is that when they have this board, they, they feel like, oh, this is uh, this is terrible. I don't want this. I like making my own calls. I don't need anybody's help. Uh, but there really is um, a huge value to have a coordinated team that's supporting your every initiative, but also doing homework in the background. And as you mentioned, doing a lot of research and coming up with viable information that can better offset the direction of the business and, and really help hone in on that strategy so that businesses do have a better trajectory forward to succeed. Yeah. And I mean, one other thing that I would add is that board is responsible also to educate themselves about topics of the day. Like today, the conversation is around cybersecurity. It, you might be someone who has been a CFO for, for 40 years. You might not be educated enough about cybersecurity, or you might have been a lawyer for 20, 25 years, but you might not be educated enough about topics around ESG. It's your responsibility to either go learn about those topics, or whenever the topic comes up, bring in an expert to help you and help the team solve the problem. And, and that could be, let's say, an observer who comes in and who tries to actually support the, the board as well as the founding team. I love it. And when you're working on these um, multiple ob observer roles, do you find that they're utilizing the time correctly, that the board meetings are efficient, effective, uh, or are they six hours long and you feel like you didn't achieve anything at the end of it? Um, is, is there things that you would say, Hey, founders, when you're putting a board together, keep these three things in mind. They're going to be helpful for how you run and operate a board, but also how you utilize observers better in this process. Um, I Yeah, I think it's the job of the board members as well as the founders to make the board meeting as useful as possible. Um, one thing is that everybody who goes into the board meeting, have they have to be ready. They have to have done their homework. So if, if it's a founder, they have to have distributed the board materials a week in advance. If it's a board members, they have to have reviewed all the board materials. They Everybody should know what is the question at hand, what is the biggest problem that they are going in to try to solve before going in so that they do their research, they have their notes prepped, they know who to call if, if, if the time comes. Um, obviously, making, making a board meeting more than two hours, I think it's useless. If there's a specific conversation that, that to be done um, and it doesn't require everybody there, um, founders can have like a separate meeting. If, if it's, let's say it's a conversation about their technology or tech stack, not everybody on the board, uh, board team 
need to know about how the technology development is going and what are the challenges with it. Maybe there's a specific person who can help with the tech stack. So I think those are the things that can can be handled outside the board as uh, board meeting as well. Um, I think overall having now um, like uh, basically everybody uh, been accustomed to using Zoom and, and virtual meetings that definitely have made everything much easier in, in terms of having boards. People were scared of having, have, like investing in companies, for example, let's say in UK and Europe, because if it comes for a board meeting, they had to fly and it would take a lot of time from them. Now everything is virtual, so it has made everything much easier. It certainly has simplified things as well. And, and this is kind of a good segue because it, it, it works into a, a recent article that you had created, which is uh, Mentors and the Laws of Diminishing Returns, um, which I think was a, a great read because it really does help you better understand maybe what you're trying to do as an outcome at the end, but how you get there and are the pieces that your mentors and coaches that you're working with, will they help you get to that part? And I know you kind of steer them in that there's some value. And I've read many articles, as I'm sure you have over the years, where you're they say, well, coaches aren't really worth it. Mentors aren't worth it. And on the other side, they're saying, no, they're super valuable. You really need these. So maybe you can share a little bit more about what you wrote there, because this all kind of fits part and parcel to having a board is that the founders typically all have mentors and coaches as well. So really, at the end of the day, you've got all of these people that are out there trying to throw advice at you, your board's telling you to do this, your coaches are telling you to do this. And you really have to figure out, Oh man, what is the right way I need to go with this? You know, it's my first time running a business or, you know, it's my first time running a, a hundred million dollar business. And, and there's a lot of data coming at you and, and there's gotta be some decisions you have to make, but who do you follow? Is your advisor smarter than your coach? Is your coach smarter than your board? And maybe you can kind of share a little bit about that and how it worked with this diminishing's return, uh, which again was uh, really well done. So, I no, I think um, the one thing that everybody should understand, including investors and founders, is that you're just amazing at pattern recognition. Like as investors, who might see a thousand startups a year um, over the let's say like whatever ten years of being an investor, you might you might see like five or ten startups closely getting somewhere either going bust or becoming like uh, success stories. But what what happens, and, and I, I think the challenge is that um, your brain loves to identify patterns and it loves to push you to go through those patterns over and over. So you see a startup company as a, as a mentor and advisor and you want to advise them and you've seen something before historically and you try to like, go to the founder and try to basically tell them, this is what I think you should do. And what you're suggesting is just based on the historical data that you have. Um, and ultimately at the end of the day, because you're amazing at pattern recognition, that doesn't mean that you're gonna be good at predicting the future. So nobody knows what is going to happen, but you might um, hear a specific advice for a specific type of business but then that might be a completely wrong advice just because that a specific type of business wouldn't survive or scale or become success story with whatever you've seen in the past. Um, and so this happens with like all the five coaches and advisors that you have. Each of them are coming to you at a different angle because they've seen different things in the past. And, and like all of them might be wrong or all of them might be right. But the thing is that you can't listen to every one of them. At some point, you are basically missing out on focusing on your sales 
by trying to like satisfy or make uh, make your advisors and coaches happy because you follow exactly what what they're telling you. Um, so I think my advice is is that as a founder, investors have have put their trust in you. These advisors want to help you. The idea is that all of these people believe in you to run this business. And I think you have to trust your gut to run the business the way that you think is gonna, going to work. At least if you fail, you know that it was you and you know what you did and you can course correct much quicker than listening to an advisor who told you to do X and you went and did X and you came back and you're like, oh, this didn't work um, and you're lost. I think, I think trusting your gut, hearing everyone's opinion, um, is is great. Hearing everybody's expertise and experience is great. It uh, it helps you gather all that historical knowledge, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be the route to success if if you actually um, take their advice word by word and and do it. This is great, and and I if taking that and kind of regurgitating it back is that you know maybe your gut is seventy percent of the solution. You know the market, you know what you're doing, you've been doing it. And the 30% is you gaining knowledge from everybody else and their historical pattern recognition, as you mentioned, I love that term for this, uh, that you love how it's organized. But at the end of the day, it's just information. Maybe you're jotting down on an Excel sheet, all the different suggestions to your main problem. As you mentioned in the board, you have one main problem and a bunch of other ones, but what's the biggest one you're solving? And you take all of that information, you line it up, and then you have to make a choice. Well, 70% of that choice will be your gut. 30% is going to be leaning towards the information you have. Now, would you recommend that throughout this entire version of this is that you have one go-to person that you then take all this information and you bounce that off? You know, some could be your wife, your husband, your mm. partner, whatever it might be. And you say, here's what I've come up with. Here's what my gut's telling me. And you get their last critical feedback to make sure it validates your direction. Is there something like that? It's non-biased outside the network, not your coach, not your advisor, but somebody that just knows enough about what you're doing that can give you kind of that, I love that, or no, maybe think of this. Like, is there somewhere else that you want to do that or just go with your with what you've put together and make the call? I mean, I would, I would say personally, I definitely have that one go-to person who's outside this network. And I think it's not that I talk to them and they give me feedback. It's that I talk to them and I hear myself saying it and that makes it more realistic for me. And I'm like, oh, that's actually stupid now that it came out of my mouth. I think that's that's what you're looking for. Like, obviously, if you have a smart companion who can give you some feedback as well, that's that's amazing. But I think having someone to go to and, and try to like consolidate all the things that you've heard um, and try to like just like spell it out, that that really helps a lot. Ah, that's brilliant. I love that. And it, it is, uh, I think it lines up correctly because again, we're inundated with so in, so much information, so much reading that sometimes you just need to take a pause, take a breath and share that information to that one person that you can hear yourself talk and have them, you know, they can cue, they can agree. It almost sounds like you're going to speak to a shrink, but at the end of the day, they're giving you enough of that direction that you can then start to set the stage and then go back with confidence to your board, to your coaches and say, here's the direction we've taken. And knowing that it's coming from you, you now have the drive to support it versus the other side when you're taking it from everybody else and you accept what they've said. Now you're becoming, you're falling behind the wheel, not driving because you've lost that ability because you had to accept everybody else's direction 
and you as the founders is just to come to that instead of going with the information you have and making the choice that you think is going to drive that business. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like um, Warren Buffett talking about investment that he says, um, invest in what you love. It's, it's basically put your effort in what you love and believe in because it's going to take, take some time until it comes to fruition. And if you don't love it, you're going to hate every, every second of it. That's a good point. Awesome. Well, we're going to transition now into uh, a couple of more, uh, we'll say a couple more quick questions, and then we're going to get into my favorite segment, which is a 60-second rant. So uh, the first question is, what's the toughest lesson you've learned as an investor to date? Um, I think it's the fact that we try to think that we have collected enough information about an investment. Um, and we, we think that we know all the risks that are out there, but then the reality could be completely different. And um, what I've seen is an example of a company that let's say all the investors think that they have to write down and all of a sudden becomes a massive success. And on the other hand, a company that everybody thinks is is becoming a massive success, but all of a sudden becomes a mediocre success or just completely fails. Um, and not just at the moment of investment, let's say four years into that investment, you still think that this thing is becoming a massive success and all of a sudden things change and vice versa. And that has happened a lot for, I think, every investor. And I think that is a very humbling uh, experience when you go through that and you realize we just don't know much. We are trying to maximize the amount that we know and try to capture all the risks, but there are stuff that we are going to miss. Completely agree with that. Love it. Um, okay. Now maybe you can share a, a case study or a quick uh, insightful piece of what it takes to be an entrepreneur. You've been an entrepreneur yourself. You've, you've worked with entrepreneurs is there a kind of a case study that you're just like, this company was going to fail and they crushed it, or they did this, but they should have done this. And this is just the way it takes to be an entrepreneur. I think there's this uh, glorified side that everybody that steps into entrepreneurship is going to crush it and sell their company for a billion dollars in two years and walk away. But there is a lot of struggles and a lot of tough things that they go through. And, and maybe you can share a, you know, a quick story on what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Ooh, I think uh, I think one of the biggest traits to be a successful entrepreneur is patience and doing it for the love of what you're doing and doing it for the love of the impact that you can have, not for the love of making the billion dollar exit or or like succeeding uh, in a night or two. So, um, and I mean that's that's one of the things that I personally don't have a lot of. It's like I'm not a patient person, and I know it's always very difficult for me to be patient. So it's not easy to recommend to people be patient, and uh, because you are patient, but then success might just never come. And you have maybe left a job that was paying a proper salary, and are doing something that is very difficult. So um, I think. A successful entrepreneur has a bit of craziness. He's is like a bit irrational, or he or she is a bit irrational. They just they just believe that something will happen and believe from the bottom of their heart that something is, is going to change the world. And that's why they make that irrational decision of leaving the money that can go to their pocket now from a corporate job and living with the hope of 
making a massive change. Um, so that would that would be my take on a successful entrepreneur being being a bit irrational. Agreed. Yeah, patience is a tough one for for entrepreneurs, and maybe they'll grow that over time. But being having a fifth fifth gear and being able to take yourself into different levels to drive and and to be successful and I think those all are a, a big portion of of what makes things work in the space and uh, never given up, but knowing when to give up at the same time as per your previous uh, yeah. engagement. Okay, we're going to jump right into the 60-second rant. So I'm going to give you 60 seconds. You can rant about anything that you think is um, deemable, and then I'm going to rebuttal once if I can, and then uh, you'll close it off from there. Ready to roll? Sure, yeah. Okay, I I would uh, yeah. So I would, basically, my problem is with with pitch decks, and this is actually not a topic that uh, people are unfamiliar with. Like everybody talks about pitch deck, how to better pitch. There are things that I hate about about, about like sending a pitch deck. This could be a cold message or not, but if you send a pitch deck and you send it in PowerPoint, that really drives me nuts because it moves around, and uh, when I want to present it, it's not as easy. If your PowerPoint or pitch deck has a lot of animation, I mean, it's beautiful, but it doesn't solve my problem of understanding what you do in a couple of minutes. Um, so I have to like be patient with the animation. It is distracting me, but I have to like make sure that I focus on, on, uh, on the diamond, the rough. Um, I've seen pitch decks that seem to be, have made with Windows 98. So they make, um, if, if this is a successful business, you don't need to spend on marketing, but at least you can build a better deck, something that looks good. Um, I know people talk about, oh, this deck has a lot of text, this deck uh, doesn't have a lot of text, etc. That's not the problem. The problem is that your deck looks terribly ugly, and it could just be a bit pleasing for my eye to look at. If you're using very bright um, blue that is really hurting me, and you're using black text on the blue, which I can't see and read, that is painful and you can just use a simple template, make it easy for me to read and make it easy for me to understand. Um, I think John, even, yeah. We're, we're calling it at that, but uh, yeah. I, I gave you some extra seconds. Well, sure. my rebuttal to that is that, uh, but I'm not a, a pitch deck builder. I'm here to just sell you on my business idea. Can't you read through all of this fluff and bad structure and bad information? Can you not just find in there the information that tells you how great my company is? Can you not just look at the end result, even if it is 35 pages long? Uh, can you not just find the answer and be like, I want to invest in me? Uh, why can't you do all that work? I think that there's some, uh, in order to find that diamond in the rough, you should have to do the work. That's what the whole point of this is, is it not? I think the pitch deck is like a standardized exam. If you can't, uh, if you can't, uh pass the standardized exam you can't get into university it's uh if you can't make a proper deck that uh that i can understand quickly i can't trust you with your business and uh and your judgment that's one two is that have like we have to look at i have to personally look at a thousand decks a year um if every deck takes me half an hour i just humanly can't review all these decks in in uh all the business days that i have so if you can if you can help me, please understand your business in a shorter amount of time, that would be lovely. I love it. Well shared. Yeah, uh, 100%. Keep it short, keep it simple. 
and, and be precise. You know, put in a couple of slides that really define the problem and how you make money. You know, it 20% of your deck should be on the solution and the problem, and 80% should be on how you make money. Make it easy for the investor, help them out, help them get through right to the end so that they know what the best part of this is. The 35-page decks, that's probably 1980s. We don't need those anymore. So make it clean and simple, right? But uh, I love it. I, I can't even not support it because I totally agree with you. Uh, the long decks and me figuring it out. Now, I love what you're saying, man. Keep it short and just get to the point. Get to the point. All right, we're going to jump into the uh, rapid fire questions. So you're going to pick one or the other, obviously coming from your role as being an investor. You choose which ones work best for you and we'll go through those. Ready to roll? Yeah. All right. Founder or co-founder? Ooh, co-founder. Unicorn or a four-year 10X exit? Oh, four-year 10X exit. Tech or CPG? Tech. NFTs or Web 3.0? Web 3.0. Neither. Blockchain <laughs> or AI? <laughs> Blockchain or AI? Um, difficult. A AI. First time founder or second, third time founder? It's tricky. Second time founder. Yeah. First money in or Series A? Um, series A. Angel or VC? VC. Board seat or observer? Observer. Safe or convertible note? Ooh. Hmm. Convertible. Okay. Lead or follow? Lead. Favorite part of investing? Ooh. Talking to smart people. Number of companies invested per year? Um, eight. Verticals of focus. Um, health tech, industrial innovation, enterprise B2B SaaS. Two qualities a startup needs to stand out to you. Smart people, um, differentiated technology. Okay, what is the piece of advice you give founders nine out of 10 times? Know your numbers. Okay. Do you have a philosophy or rules that you stand behind? Um, I don't like um, founders that come to us through a broker, but because uh, a good CEO should be able to raise their own money, but we still look for diamonds in the rough. Okay. Who is your hero, mentor, and why? Um, I don't, I don't know if she knows Sally Dobb is, uh, is a mentor at, uh, CDL Toronto. Um, she is my hero because she does 10 things at the same time and she rocks at all of them. So she's, she's amazing. I think that's why she's my, my hero. Okay. Love it. I don't think she knows me, but. <laughs> well, we can send her this blurb. So she'll find that out real quick. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What is your biggest fear or phobia in business startup ecosystem? Ooh, everybody trying to start a startup and trying to be a billion dollar business. What line do you find you share to investors over and over? Recently, it's a tough market. 
What is your worst investment? And you don't have to name names, just maybe the process or something that happened. Um, an investment that I trusted the technology. I did not believe in the CEO. Um, and I invested because I believe that I have downside protection because of the IP. Uh, that's good. Do you have any other pods that you like to listen to or areas of interest that you can share? Um, I sometimes listen to the all-in all pod. I think everybody listens to that. It's a, it's a good one. Uh, not agree, uh, agreeing with everything they say, but it's, it's good. It's fine. Okay. All right, personal questions. We're almost there. Most famous person that pops in your mind? Brad Pitt. Nice. First brand that pops in your mind? Ooh, Nike. Book or movie? Um, book. Oh, just, just like name it or? No, 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 just either one. Um, book. Superman or Batman? Ooh, Batman. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Fortune cookie. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Five minutes with Bezos. Mountain or beach? Beach. My, bike or run? Bike. Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? Big Mac. Trophy or money? Money. Beer or wine? Beer. TED Talk or book reading? Uh, book reading. TikTok or Instagram? Neither. Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook or LinkedIn? LinkedIn. Oof. Favorite movie and what character would you play? Uh, it's Troy. <laughs> Brad Pitt. <laughs> Brad Pitt, Troy. That's a good flick. That's a good flick. Uh, favorite book? Um, I think it's, uh, it's called um, uh, Thinking in Bets was, was my favorite book. Um, don't remember the author's name, but she was a poker player. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Very good book. Yes. Uh, she was a, uh, if I remember correctly, she came, I can't remember what it was. She was something else before and decided to go into poker and test everything out. She was, uh, she was a psychology PhD student. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And then she ended up going and testing her theory out on cards and ended up becoming a card shark and loved it. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, favorite sports team. Uh, Barcelona. It's a soccer team, Spain. I love it. I've seen them play multiple times in uh, in Barcelona. Big fan. What is the meaning of success to you? Ooh. Making change, uh, making positive change. What is your superpower? Um, understanding technologies that I'm um, not familiar with and explaining it to others very quickly. I love it. Well, I found the same. You're very uh, easygoing, but you're also very knowledgeable in a lot of spaces. So it's very helpful to kind of navigate through things. Uh, and you've got some great articles. So big fan. Love it. All right. Thank well, you. I'm going to say that this is the this is the last part or the last segment. We're right at the end. 
And I want to thank you for joining us today, Moen. It's been a real pleasure getting to dive into uh, yourself and the way you look and operate in the world. Uh, fantastic journey. And please share with the audience how they can get connect with you. And the way we like to end our show is that we like to give you the last word. So anything that you want to share with founders or investors, I turn it over to you. But again, thank you very much for sharing everything. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, um, um, my LinkedIn would be the best way to get connected. Um, I, I think the most important thing is that we are at a time that is that is a bit tough comparing to two or three years ago. Um, there has been um, a lot of investment in 2020, 2021. Um, there were a lot of companies well-funded, overfunded, overcapitalizing those years. Um, a lot of the companies over 2020 to try to try to extend their runway, try not to raise, but now they're getting at a time that is that is tougher. There are fewer investors investing, um, and it might be um, they might feel a lot of, hear a lot of no's. They might uh, they might feel that they're hitting a, a block. Um, I just think that they have to continue to believe in what they're doing um, and try to stay positive and try to show um, good metrics um, that um, proves that they're building a sustainable business. It is not the question of growth at all costs anymore. It's the question of have you built or can you build a sustainable business moving forward? I love it. Well supported. Mullen, thank you again awesome. for your time today. Awesome. Okay, that was a great conversation with uh, with Moen. And some of the pieces that I kind of really stood out, I guess, is that, you know, uh, have patience. And when you're building something, uh, you know, really, when you're tying in board members or observer roles, advisor roles, coach, coaches, make sure they offset and bring extra knowledge in. But just remember that no matter how you look at it, you have to learn from everybody. And if we use that 70, 30, 70% uh, of it's gotten 30% of it's information and tying those together. And then as um, you mentioned, you know, have that go-to person where you can bounce that final idea off and close the, the loop and then make the decision and move forward. I think those are always going to be super valuable. And, you know, uh, I can't put enough emphasis on the fact that he talked about so much on that patient side. It, it makes a big difference. So you can really get a, a real clear view of what you're trying to obtain. And then as he talked about the obtainable market, it really is important that when you're doing the analysis and like his background, he's a PhD, they do a lot of research. So they really want to know what they're getting into right from the get-go. So they're researching the markets, they're researching the size of market, what's obtainable, what's not obtainable, how fast can we get this? Is this business scalable? And, and you know, described a lot of how a business can be scalable or how it can't. And he took the approach where, you know, even in his own business, when he started off and he saw that there wasn't a scalable side to his model, that they had to step away. And, and I think that's very brilliant because he ended up not wasting five years trying to fight a market, realized right at the beginning that there wasn't a market or at least the market wasn't built up for at that time. So lots of great knowledge there, a lot of great sharing. And um, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to share with your friends, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and please follow us on Spotify, Google, and or Apple. Feel free to share an audio or video clip around the show. We may include it in one of our future podcasts. You can find us on all social platforms, including LinkedIn, at Supporters Fund. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. Please visit us at supportersfund.com or startup events at openpeoplenetwork.com.
Thank you and have a fantastic day.